page 946, if you're borrowing one of our Bibles. We're in Romans 9, verse 30, and we're going to read down to 10, verse 4. Again, this is the book of Romans 9, verse 30, down 10, 4. And this is the Apostle Paul, and he says this. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thanks, Josh. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors and uh, delighted to have you here as we uh, dig into God's word. Um, our students are leaving for camp after this, uh, which we're excited for them. Yeah, you, you'll see them in, in the kind of uh, turquoise tank tops. Josh offered me one, and I said, for everyone's sake, I will not preach in that tank top uh, for mine and yours, so you're welcome. Um, but uh, they're going to have a great time. We're actually going to, at the end of the service, uh, take a minute and pray for those students and staff, about 60, uh, 60 students, volunteer staff, Josh, and, and a number of other folks going. And so it, it should be uh, really good. One other thing before we get into uh, the scripture here this morning is um, we just kind of passed about the two-month mark since uh, the end of our Roots campaign, and so I just wanted to give you an update on that. If you're newer with us, uh, this is about a, a project that we've initiated to be able to purchase the 10 and a half acres directly next to our building, and uh, we're in the process of doing that, and, uh, and, and you all have responded with incredible generosity and commitment to be able to, to fund for that uh, and to be able to, to initiate that first step of purchasing uh, the land. And so on the back of your program, uh, you maybe already noticed this, but this is there every week just as a way to update you. And uh, I just want to just, just remind you and update you. We're, uh, the need that we have for the project is just over a million bucks. And you guys have already given over $176,000 for that. So thank you for that. And uh, I just, on behalf of our elders, I appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate it and are looking forward to what God will do in the future uh, as we really lay down roots in this community where we can last here for, for a real long time. Uh, one other thing you might notice is uh, our stage is a little different, uh, which looks pretty cool. If you've been here, you know, it used to be just a white wall and now it's all this, which is pretty cool. Um, but, but here's the thing. If I were you, and maybe you're not as cynical or suspicious as I am, and if you're not good for you. Your life is much richer for it. But if, if, if I were you, there would be a little bit of me that would go, okay, we're in the, kind of the middle of this fundraising campaign, and you guys do this whole stage thing? Like, really? Well, here's what you need to know. This thing was done almost completely by volunteers. Um, yeah. Jay, Jay Power... It, Jay Power is a painter in our church, and he volunteered to paint all of the stuff black. Uh, EJ and Stephanie Cockrum enlisted one of their friends, and together they built, out of uh, pallet, thrown away wood, they built all this stuff. And really, it's incredible. Um, 
And I, and I think it's even a beautiful picture of the gospel, right, where God takes, takes those of us who are in the trash bin because of our sin and turns us into something beautiful. And that's what this is. This is reclaimed pallet garbage wood that's been turned into something incredible. Um, and, and because of their generosity and their service, by the way, they're thrilled to have these out of their garage. Um, <laughs> But because of that, we were able to do this with almost zero cost, and it's just really, really encouraging uh, to be able to, to use the creativity that God gives people and yet to do it with good stewardship. And so um, thank you to them, and, uh, and Thomas Bates was a huge part of getting everything relit and figured out with the stage, and, and Jeremy Rabideau with the band, and just, just really a lot of great work. So I want to acknowledge them and uh, just acknowledge that up front. All right? All right, let's get into God's Word. Um, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10, uh, as Josh read just a moment ago. You know, there are a couple ways to learn from mistakes. And I've, I've learned in life, if you want to get ahead, if you want to make some progress, you've got to learn from mistakes. You don't want to be a person that doesn't learn from mistakes. But there's two ways to learn from mistakes. There's the cheap way, which is learning from other people's mistakes, and there's the expensive way, which is learning from your mistakes, right? And oftentimes, we see other people's mistakes, and, and we go, oh, I ought to learn from that. Or we go, well, you know, I'm different. I'm the exception to the rule. And we go, no, I, I'll pay, I'll pay the, the heavy price. I'll learn it the hard way, right? How many of you are parents that are like, I've told my kids, if you go down this road, here's where it's going to lead. And they're like, you, you, you're dumb. You don't know anything. This is 2014. And you're like, all right, here we go. And they learn the, the expensive way, right? And we don't want to do that. And, and here's what this passage uh, demonstrates for us. We'll look at it here in just a minute. Is we get to learn from Israel's mistakes. In this section of Romans, Paul has been asking the question, what happened to the nation of Israel? How come these people who had been chosen by God and were in the line of Abraham, how come so many of them have rejected their Messiah? And the reason that's an important question is because in chapter 8, God had given us all these incredible promises. And, and so that, that then goes, okay, well, if, if we have all these incredible promises, well, God made all kinds of promises to Israel, and they're not walking with him. They're not close to him. How can we trust these promises? And so Paul has gone in this section into this, into this long conversation, and it's going to go from chapters 9 through 11, about what happened to Israel. And the first thing he said is that God has, God's word has not failed. God's promises have not failed because true Israel is a spiritual people, not an ethnic one. True Israel are the people who, like Abraham, uh, have faith. And that's how they're made righteous. That's how you become a true Israelite. It's not just what blood you have, what DNA you have in your bloodstream. Um, so, so, so that's been his first answer, is that true Israel is a spiritual people, and they, they're made that way by the free and unconditional and sovereign mercy of God, that God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and uh, they are where they are because of God's mercy or because of God's rejection. But in this passage, we're going we're gonna to see some the next part of it. And Paul's going to say that Israel is, the, is where they are because of Israel. They're where they are because of the choices they've made. They're where they are because of who they've rejected. And so there's a lot here that's really, really important for us to learn. 
Now, before we get into that, let me just uh, remind you of, of one more thing, is Paul's heart in this whole thing. The Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter, he was a committed Jew who was persecuting Christians and became then a champion of Christianity. He's writing this letter, and he's talking about his love for his fellow Israelites. And if you just look back in chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, uh, just remember, here's what he said there. He said, I'm telling the truth, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, the Israelites. I I love them so much. I'm so grieved that they don't trust and honor God. And then he's going to say the same thing. And I I just want to point this out to you uh, in chapter 10, verse 1. We're not going to spend a lot of time there later, so I want to just point it out now. Look at his heart again in chapter 10, verse 1. Right in the middle of the section we're going to look at. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That's his heart. I so want them to be saved. And isn't it interesting that he says my prayer for them is that they would be saved. Now, the reason that's interesting is because what he's just written is that before time began, before anyone had done anything good or bad, God chose his people. You go, okay, well, then that seems to be highlighting God's sovereignty. But then he says, but my prayer for them on an ongoing, regular basis, I pray that they would be saved. And some people would go, well, but if God's decided everything before time began, then why pray? Listen, Paul never felt that way. Paul said part of how God works is through prayer, through praying for people, through through lifting up your heart to God and saying, God, you alone can rescue, you alone can save. Would you save this person I love? Some of you go, well, that doesn't make sense. I I don't get it. and, And here's what it is. That's a paradox. That's something that appears to be contradictory, and yet the same guy writing can say both things and not even flinch at it, not even feel like he needs to explain it. And let me just tell you, there are other things in life like this, right? So some of you understand physics and you understand light, and one of the things you know is that scientists tell us different things about light that seem contradictory, but they're not, right? For instance, light is in particles, particles, but light is also in waves. You go, well, is light in particles or in waves? Those are different things. Which? Yes. It's in both. Well, how do you explain that? Well, no one knows. No one understands. It's a paradox. And yet both are true. And the same thing is true here. And we need to just, I think, remember that and and remember. And and in the next section, what Paul's going to say is, I'm going all over the place because anyone who trusts in Christ can be saved. And so we need to remember that. This doesn't lead us into a cold kind of uh, theology where we just go, well, it's just, you know, it doesn't matter what we do. Our choices make no difference. No, we pray for people and we share the gospel and we love them. And I just wanted to, at the beginning, even though that's not really part of his main point today, I wanted to make sure we reviewed and and hit that, okay? But here's really going back uh, to the main point where we're headed. We're trying to learn from Israel's mistake. And specifically, what we want to learn from is their rejection of Christ. And and I think what, what this does is actually provides a paradigm for us to learn from, to go, the Jews were the most religious people around, right? They they had the scripture, they had the traditions, they had the laws, they had the sacrificial system, they had all of that stuff, 
And yet, in spite of that, they are cut off from Christ and on their way to hell. Which serves as an interesting lesson for us, if we will have ears to hear it, that we too, if we're just religious, without real relationship with Christ, we too might be cut off from Christ and on our way to hell. So here's the title of today's message. Why religious people go to hell. Why religious people go to hell. And I'm going to give you four reasons for that. Now, now listen, if you're more of a religious person, or maybe you go, well, I'm not religious. If you've been a Christian for a length of time, you've been part of a church, you need to listen up today. Because the default mode of the human heart and the default way we drift is toward uh, cold law religion. That's, that's where we move. Thinking we're honoring God by, by doing a bunch of stuff when in fact we have no relationship with him. And so you need to pay attention today. You need to listen today. I'd ask you even to have the humility to say, to what degree does this reflect and apply to my heart? Now, for those of you who are not Christians, you're going to love this today because you're, you're like, man, I, I can't stand religious people. They think they're so great, and I've always thought they were all going to hell, so perfect, right? You're going to be really happy today, um, and, and you get kind of a week off from having to, like, oh, I'm not religious, so okay. Now, now, you might actually, as we go in this, you might actually be more religious than you think, um, but, but I think you'll, you'll still get, it'll, this will intrigue you to go, what, why would religious people go to hell? Well, we're going we're gonna to look at that. As we get into it, though, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it instructs us. Thank you that it gives us examples to follow and patterns to avoid. God, help us to learn from you and your word here today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's the setting before we get into the four reasons why religious people go to hell. The situation is this. It says in verse 30, what should we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying the Gentiles, who wanted nothing to do with God, are now in relationship with him by faith in Jesus, and the Jews, who thought they were pursuing God, aren't. Right? There's this been, been this incredible mix-up here. How did this happen? And it reminded me of this story that, that some of you may have heard about in the news some years back. In April 2006, there was a, a big passenger van of students from Taylor University in Indiana. It's a small Christian school. And they were uh, towards the end of the school year, and they were driving. And, and this tractor trailer crossed the median and slammed into the van. And people and, and purses and uh, bags and things were just thrown everywhere. Uh, sadly, five people died at the scene. And, uh, and a, number, a few other people uh, lived. And, and you can just imagine in a small community like that, in a small school like that, there began to be these funerals, right? One funeral after another and friends and family from all over the country coming in for these things and, and having these funerals. Well, there was one girl who, who lived and her name was Laura Van Ryn. And she was badly disfigured, badly damaged, bandages and things kind of all over her body. They had found her, her purse at the scene of the accident and uh, were able to, that was the only way they were able to identify her was, was w- by what they found there. And, and she was so disfigured and, and actually was in a coma. And so she's there in the hospital for two weeks in a coma. And her friends and her family are there. And her boyfriend is coming. And her mom and her dad and her sister, they're, they're reading her scripture. And they're praying for her. And they're holding her hand. And they're singing her songs. And they're, they're loving on her. Well, after a couple weeks, she comes out of the coma. 
And they begin to talk with her. And, and like a lot of people in this situation, the doctors told them, there was a lot that she was fuzzy on and just didn't remember very well. And there were times where she just wasn't connecting with things that they were saying. And, and, and they just didn't really understand this. And, and it was like they just, she didn't remember certain things that they all really thought she'd remember. And they began to ask her, what's your name? And she would say, my name's Whitney. And they'd say, no, your name's Laura. And the doctors told them, listen, this is part of it. People forget stuff. Well, after five weeks after the accident, she's in a therapy session, and she's asked to write down her name, and she says, my name is Whitney Serac. Well, one of the funerals that took place four weeks before that, 1,400 people came for the funeral of Whitney Serac. And this family and her boyfriend realized that these two girls that looked very similar because of the disfigurement, they didn't know that their actual Laura was dead. Can you, can you just imagine that? Can you imagine thinking, my, my daughter who's alive, and yes, there's all this medical problem, but at least she's alive and she's going to be okay. Imagine finding out now she's dead. On the flip side, can you imagine being one of the 1,400 people who attended Whitney's funeral who's going, she's alive. It's incredible. It's this incredible thing. And to me, that is a wonderful, if you think about the big picture, so some of us go, what's the big deal about this Israel, you know, Gentile thing? That's a great picture of what's going on here, right? The people who you thought were alive, the Jews, it turns out they're dead. They're not connected to God. They've got a form of godliness, but they've denied the power. They're religious, but they got no relationship. And the people who didn't seem to want anything to do with God, the people who seemed to be totally dead, have now been brought in by faith in Christ. It's this incredible, jaw-dropping thing if you understand the big-picture narrative of the Bible. And so Paul's got to go, why did that happen? We've got to learn from that. What happened there? And what we're going to learn here are these four, uh, four reasons religious people go to hell. Why did it happen? The first one we see is in verse 32. Religious people think they can get righteousness through works. First reason religious people go to hell is because they think they can get righteousness through works. Verse 31, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Here, Paul's going to give the first answer. Why did that happen? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They didn't pursue it on the basis of faith. They did it on the basis of works. Now, they, this should have never happened because God has always related to his people on the basis of faith, on the basis of his free mercy, his free, his free gift to them. But these people thought, I could get righteousness by works. Now listen, righteousness in this passage is a key word. The word righteousness, the original language actually shows up eight times. I think in our English translations it's six. It's tremendous. There's a, a website that I use sometimes called wordle.net, wordle.net, and you can, I don't get a commission or anything, but it's a cool site. Um, you can put any text you want in there and hit go, and it creates a word cloud, and the words that are repeated more often show up bigger kind of in proportion to how many times they're used. So I did that for this passage, and, and look at what we found out. What's this passage about? Righteousness. And, and, and get this, right, this is, well, this is all what he said in verse 30. The Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness attained righteousness, that is, a righteousness by faith, 
But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue righteousness by faith, but as if it were based on works. Well, what's righteousness? Get this. Righteousness is being approved of by God. Having right standing before God as if you had never sinned and as if you had been perfectly holy. It is the not guilty and it is also the you are wonderful, right? This is, this is God saying, you're all good. That's what righteousness is. And what he's saying here is that the Jews tried to get that not by receiving it by faith, but by trying to earn it. That's what's going on. Now, the way they did that was by trying to keep kosher laws, right? Eat this, don't eat that, don't mix these things. Uh, trying to keep the commandments, trying to keep up with the sacrificial system, all that stuff, trying to keep the Sabbath. I've told some of you before about how, uh, and some of you have been to Israel, and in Israel, one of the most fascinating things is they've got these Sabbath elevators, where on, on a Saturday, uh, the whole Sabbath, Friday night to uh, Saturday night, the, the elevators are programmed to automatically stop at each floor, because if you press a button to tell what floor you want to go to, that would create a spark, which would be like fire, which would be like working on the Sabbath. That's how far they've taken it. So instead, they just program it to, to stop at every point, right? That's taking it a little bit far, okay? But, but what is that? That is saying we are going to do everything we can to pursue righteousness by our effort rather than receiving it through what Christ has done. Now, they shouldn't have missed this because in the Old Testament, the major story that the Jews attached to and loved was the story of the Exodus. And we've got to remember the order of the story of the Exodus. In, in the story of the Exodus, the people of Israel are in slavery in Egypt. And God rescues them out of that slavery. And do you remember how he does it? He does it ultimately through the blood of a spotless Passover lamb says, if you will trust me enough to take the blood of this lamb and put it over your door, the angel of death will pass over you and you will be delivered. And they do that. They trust God that way by faith. And they are rescued out of slavery in Egypt and they're brought into, eventually, into a, a new promised land. And on the way, after that whole deliverance happens, after that whole rescue happens, is Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments always come after God's rescue, right? And it's the same way for us, right? God tells us to do certain things, but it only matters after you've been washed in the blood of the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, right? And, and when we flip that, when we reverse that, when we try to earn righteousness, earn a good standing before God, we can't do it. And we're just being religious. We're on our way to hell. Well, they did it by kosher and Sabbath and, and sacrificial system and that sort of stuff. How do we do it? What does it look like for us? Well, in our world, it could look like sort of your ordinary uh, Christian sort of legalism. You know, it would be things like, you know, make sure you read your Bible, make sure you attend church, make sure you don't watch certain kind of movies or listen to certain kind of music or, you know, do those sort of, you know, bad things that people do. You know, avoid that. That, that could be one form of it, but I think it's much more subtle. See, I think, I think this kind of legalism is sort of the big word for this. This happens any time we're trying to achieve a right standing before God or others by our own work. Any time we're trying to prove to ourselves or others or God that we're okay. 
Anytime we do that, it's like pursuing righteousness by works instead of receiving what Christ has given us. So let me just give you an example. You ever heard the phrase mommy guilt? What is that? It's all based on this idea that if you are a good enough mom, if you're a good enough parent, if you, you know, you don't just make hot dogs, you make hot dogs that look like bunnies because that's what you saw on Pinterest. And, and all your kids are like, wow, that's incredible. And, right, and, and you like take it to the next level. And you always discipline when you're supposed to. And you always, you know, this whole summer, you know, it's not just like let's, what's on TV. It's like day 84 of our summer adventure, right? And you've got it all planned out. And, right? what, what is that? And what is that that when you don't do it or you don't have that makes you go, oh, yeah. What is that? It's it's works righteousness. If I do this, if I look this way, then I'll know I count. Then I'll know I matter. Right? Men experience this differently. Men experience this often in our work. Right? And, and going, if I can have this kind of job or develop this kind of freedom, or if I can get a job that really travels a lot, then I'll be important. Or if I can get a job where I don't have to travel as much so I can be home, then everyone will know what a family guy I am. And Right? What is that? All of that is saying, I got to achieve. I got to make this much money. I got to provide this thing that my kids never, that my parents never provided me. Well, all of that is a form of works righteousness. And you may sit here and go, Well, I'm not a legalist. I'm not trying to work my way to God. And yet everything else in your life points to the fact that what your sort of I'm okay is built on is you and your performance. That's legalism. That's that's what these Jews were doing. They were seeking a righteousness that didn't come by faith. It didn't come by saying, well, you know what? Jesus says what he's done for me is enough. And if God approves of me, who cares what everyone else thinks? They rejected that. They said, no, I've got to earn this on my own. Now, we've got to remember that this is never, ever, this works righteous thing, it's never, ever Worked. And so I want you to keep your finger there in Romans uh, 9 and go back to the left to Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 22. And, and Paul here, and we looked at this months and months ago, but he's going he's gonna to remind us why it never works to, get, to try to get righteousness by works. It's never effective. Verse 20 of chapter 3. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Now that word justified, just so you know, that's the verb form of the noun righteousness, right? So we'll make this up here, but it's as if it's the same, it's the same root word here. It's as if Paul's saying, for by works of the law, no human being will be righteousified. Declared righteous, declared okay. By works of the law, get this, how many people? None. By works of the law, by human effort, no human being will be righteousified in his sight. You sure? None. Nobody. Not one. Why? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Right? If this is about keep the rules, do the best you can, well, listen, the best you can is never enough. The righteousness of God is so high you can never do it because you're always going to stumble somewhere. You're always going to quit somewhere. You're always going to fall short somewhere. And all the, all the wet paint don't touch sign does is make you want to touch it, right? And, and that's what he's saying. You, you can't do it because these rules, all they do is remind you of how far short you fall. But here's the good news, verse 21. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now listen, Jesus is the one who perfectly kept the law. He was perfectly righteous. He was perfectly good. And Paul here is saying, if you try to get good on your own, it'll never happen. Instead, God has come to you in Christ. And if you will receive Christ's righteousness credited to you in God's sight, you're good. And you receive that not by works, but by faith. Religious people don't get that. Jews didn't get that. And as a result, they were cut off from Christ. That's really what the next part is about, the next point. If you go back to Romans 9, second thing we learn Second reason why religious people go to hell is because they stumble over Jesus. This is what he says in verse uh, 30, end of verse 32. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. You know, what's the stumbling stone? Okay, he's going to quote from Isaiah here. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in, what does it say? Him. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So God, 700 years before this, said, I'm sending somebody. And he's going to be a stumbling stone. A lot of people aren't going to get him. He's going to be a polarizing figure. But those who, those who trust him, those who don't stumble over him, they will not be put to shame. They won't regret it. They won't be disappointed. But many people will stumble over him. They won't embrace him. They'll get tripped up. By him. If you just think about this, this is exactly what we see in Jesus' life. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that everybody loved Jesus except the most religious. The most faithful Jews, in their minds, were the ones who rejected him. They were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were these religious leaders, and they couldn't stand Jesus. Why? Well, at least a couple reasons. One reason they couldn't stand him is because Jesus was always hanging out with messy people. Right? He was hanging out with the unclean. He was hanging out with the sick. He was hanging out with the messed up and the broken. He was hanging out with the prostitutes and the thieves and the tax collectors. Right? Their big accusation was him, to him was, you're a friend of sinners. To which Jesus is like, exactly. You get it. I didn't come for the healthy. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. I came for those who know they're sinners. But, but the religious people didn't get that. The other thing they didn't get is, and really didn't like is how Jesus' teaching that you couldn't be made right with God by your own effort. You needed to be perfect, and no one can fall. No one can hit that standard. That confronted their pride. That confronted their sense that, well, they could do it. And it also just seemed too easy when God, when, in Jesus, embraces all these other people. He embraces these people that don't seem to deserve it. And we go, I hate those Pharisees. Oh, yeah? Well, think about this for a second, because there might be a little Pharisee living in your heart. Think about how you feel when you hear about a serial killer, rapist, fill-in-the-blank on death row who seems to have a legitimate trust in Christ at the end of his life. How do you feel about that? 
do you go, wow, praise God, one more person in the kingdom of heaven. And I am not better than that person at all, uh, but for the grace of God go, I praise Jesus. Is that your response? Is your response like, well, that doesn't, I mean, I don't, I don't really like that, you know. I mean, I'm glad I got grace, but that doesn't sit well with me. If, if your response is the second, you got a little inner Pharisee in there. There's, there's a little bit of this religious thing going on in you. And what you're doing is you're stumbling over Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who said to the thief on the cross next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. It, do, do you struggle with accepting people the way Jesus did? If, if, you, if you do, you're more religious, you're more like these Jews than you think. See, they thought, I'm fine. I don't need a Savior like that. I don't need that help. I don't need that crutch. That's why they stumbled over Jesus. See, there's, there's multiple ways to avoid Jesus. One is by being very bad. Right? This, is how, this is a very popular way uh, to, 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 be very, uh, to, to avoid Jesus, especially when you're young, is to be very bad. I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to live for me. I'm going to live my pleasure. I'm going to do my thing, eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow I die. I'm all in. Right? That, that, that's one way. Another way to avoid Jesus, and this is popular when you get older, is to be very, very good. Say, so, you know what? I've got my ducks in a row. I'm doing okay. I'm, I got everything kind of sorted out. I'm, I'm, I've outgrown all that immature stuff I used to do. I'm, I'm all right. Both of them avoid Jesus. One avoids Jesus by saying, I don't need him. I don't want him. The other one avoids Jesus by saying, I don't need him. I'm okay. Either way, you're, you're avoiding Christ. Which is why I love this quote by this seminary professor, John Gerstner. I don't know much about him, but I like this quote. He says this, The main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. It's your good works. Some of us are such good parents. <laughs> you're like, who? I don't know. You think, like, I don't really need God. Some of you, you're so smart with business and money and finance and decisions, you feel like, I don't need God. It's, it's your good works in the way. Third, third reason, we'll go through this uh, faster, is uh, the third reason that religious people go to hell is because they have a zeal without knowledge. Uh, chapter 10, verse 2, he says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to to knowledge. And Paul's a perfect example of this. He, he was zealous for God as he was trying to kill Christians, but he wasn't doing the right thing, right? And this flies right in the face of the, the cultural idea that a lot of people say is, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. That's hooey. That is nonsense. Listen, if I sincerely believe that every kid should love peanut butter, and I give a PB&J sandwich to a kid with a peanut allergy... It will not matter how sincere I am as I rush him to the ER, right? That, that, that's foolish, right? And, and what Paul's saying here is they thought they were doing the right thing. They thought they were zealous. They made all these rules. They had it all buttoned up, and, and they weren't pursuing real truth. You go, well, maybe they just didn't know any better. Well, the next part is going to tell us that that's not the case. So here's the last reason why religious people go to hell is, number four, religious people won't submit to God's way of righteousness. They won't submit to it. 
It's not just that these guys are innocently ignorant. It's they are choosing not to submit to Christ. Look at this in chapter 10, verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, in other words, wanting to, to, to establish their own on their own basis of works, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They didn't know any better because they didn't want to know any better. It was an affront to their pride. It was an affront to their idea that I'm okay. And so they rejected Christ. They would not submit to God's way of righteousness. And yet God has given Christ, as it says in, in verse 4, as an end of the law. Now it's interesting when you think about end, right? It, verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does end here mean? Right? End, you could say, well, uh, the, the, when does the movie end? means when does it? It's over. It's terminated. There's no more movie, right? It, it's, it ended. And uh, th- then you might use the word end to go, to what ends are we trying to do this, right? What's our goal? Well, which does it mean here? Is Christ the end of the law or the goal of the law? Answer, both. He's both. Right? Because of Christ, who perfectly uh, perfected and achieved the law, all your efforts to try to do that are unnecessary. Jesus did it for you. And he is the fulfillment of the law. He is, he is the reason the law came into exist, to point you to him. And, and so God has given us what we could never earn ourselves in Jesus. And, 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 and yet, we stumble over him. We reject him. And religious people do this. A lot. Now, I want to just ask you a couple. I want, I want to probe into this a little bit. And, uh, and here's why. And I, I was talking with Matthew a little bit about this after the service. Some of you have heard this so many times. It's not by works, it's by faith. That it's just like, bing, it just bounces right off. Because it's like you've just been so desensitized to it. You've just gone, well, I don't, I don't, there's no way I struggle with that. But, but I think we all struggle with it more than we think. So let me, here's a couple ways to identify this. Here's a couple ways that I, that I try to identify this. It's to go, and, and, and what I'm saying is try to identify whether your actual righteousness is built on something other than Christ. Like what you're, what you're functionally trusting in, how do you know if that's something other than Jesus? Well, one way is, is to go, what happens when people do it really different than that? Or threaten that perspective. So l- let me just give you an example. I think one of the places where I struggle to have a kind of works righteousness, and, and the, this won't surprise you based on what I've said so far, has to do with parenting. Um, I want my kids to be a certain way, and we have high standards, and, and a lot of you do too, and, and so I, I struggle with that. And so when I'm, you know, I, I volunteered for VBS, and I was with a group of eight-year-olds, and, and this room was, no chairs were in here, and, and you know, there were a lot of times when we told kids to sit down. And I think there were some kids who, when they heard sit down, they thought what that meant was let your, let your rear end glance the floor for a fraction of a second and then get right back up, right? That's, that's what they heard, at least, when we said sit down. Well, that, that drove me crazy, right? And I, and I couldn't help but sinfully judge people who can't get their kids to sit still. And you know what that revealed? Could people work harder? I guess. That revealed a heart in me 
that says, you know what, I feel pretty good about myself because my kids can sit still. Now, forget the fact that there's only two of them, and forget the fact that they're girls, which I think makes all the difference in the world, right? <laughs> I, I want to take credit for that. And so what I'm doing is trying to achieve a right, righteous by parenting. Now, now, it might be something else for you. But what are the things where when, maybe it's a political thing. Maybe it's, I'm righteous when I have these right perspectives. And when someone else comes against you and is like, man, I, here's my idea, you're like, idiot! <laughs> right? And, and who, I'm not talking about who actually might be right or wrong. I'm talking about what's going on in your heart. That you won't acknowledge that your righteousness is built on your right understanding of things. We could go on and on with examples like that, but that's one way to figure out. How do you respond when people have a totally different approach than you've had? Does that threaten you and anger you? Another way to figure this out is to figure out what are the things that you're terrified of. That's a good indicator of what your life is really built on. Well, if, if, if we didn't have financial stability... I, I don't know what we do. Okay, you can say your righteousness is Jesus. Your righteousness is really how much financial stability you have. Well, I, you know, if I lost my health, anyone want to lose their health? No. But if that isn't just like, man, that would be bad, but it's like, I'd be undone. Then, then your life is built on that. Do you get this? It's, it's this? it's this nightmare test of going, what am I petrified of? What if this happened to me? I would go, God, how could you let this happen to me? Whatever that is, is what is becoming your functional righteousness. And listen, if you're a follower of Christ and you don't war against that with the gospel, you may drift to where the Israelites drifted. And you war against that with the gospel by saying, how I parent, the kind of money I make, the kind of health I have, does not matter. What matters is whether I have Jesus. Because he is enough. And what he thinks of me is enough. And if in his eyes, because of, not because of anything I've done, but simply because of what he has done, and I've trusted him, and I've, and I've said, man, he's all I have. If, if for that reason, he says, you're okay, you're good, then I'm good. Nothing else matters. So here's the last question with this. Will you repent of your righteousness and trust Christ? Not repent of your sins, of course you want to do that. But will you repent of the sin of self-righteousness? Will you repent of the sin of building your life on something other than Christ? And will you turn away from that? That's what the word repent means. You're headed one direction, you turn the other. Will you repent and trust Christ? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it challenges and confronts and exposes us. And God, thank you even more for sending Jesus. That when we're exposed and when we're broken and when we realize how far short we fall, we can remember Christ. Remember that he's enough. We thank you for that in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the ways that we make war on that self-righteousness is by reminding ourselves the cross. It's by preaching the gospel to 
ourselves. And one of the practical ways that we do that here on a regular basis is by celebrating communion. So just a few moments, the ushers are going to come and, and they're going to pass out bread. And uh, the bread represents Jesus' body, Jesus' perfect righteousness credited.